Welcome to the Wealth Standard Podcast with host Patrick Donahoe, author of the best-selling personal finance book, Heads I Win, Tales You Lose, and one of the nation's most influential financial advisors. The Wealth Standard's focus this season is investing. 2020 opened with markets and asset prices at all-time highs, but many of us experience more financial uncertainty now than we did a decade ago. Although there are more choices and opportunities than ever before, the risk-to-reward ratio teeters on a global fulcrum, contributing to the roller coaster of emotions surrounding financial well-being. It seems like everyone is walking on eggshells. This season, we'll cover topics revolving around investment theory and strategy, atypical investments versus conventional investments, and the role of investing within personal wealth strategies. The Wealth Standard Podcast is committed to inspiring you to be more financially free. There is no better time to gain clarity about your wealth strategy, your investments, and your financial future than now. Hi there, this is Patrick Donahoe. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Wealth Standard Podcast. Hey, make sure you, you head over to thewealthstandard.com, all the show notes from this week's episode, as well as a, a new section of the website that contains uh, some, some educational resources, uh, such as a, a free copy of uh, my book uh, and the audio version as well, uh, but also a handful of online courses so, uh, so head over to, to the website, thewellstandard.com for, uh, for that information. Uh, my, my guest today is, uh, is a great friend. His name is Garrett Gunderson. He's the chief wealth architect at Wealth Factory and the author of Killing Sacred Cows, a New York Times bestseller. He also co-wrote What the Rockefellers Know and also The Five-Day Weekend. And Garrett is also a contributor to, to Forbes. Uh, like I said, I, I've known I've known Garrett for a long time. He's been on the been on the show before a couple of years ago, uh, but you know, knowing him for the better part of, of 15 years, I really wanted to have him here to discuss what he's what he's seeing, what his perspective is regarding the current state of the economy, where it's going, uh, what he is hearing and seeing and, and listening to. Uh, but I'm also curious. I was also curious about the uh, response to some of his more uh, controversial uh, videos, as well as uh, Forbes articles. Uh, so it's uh, it's a great interview. I think you guys are going to really uh, enjoy it. Make sure you uh, visit Garrett's website, wealthfactory.com. He also has a great uh, YouTube channel, Garrett.live. And I think it's Garrett.live. If not, it's youtube.com forward slash Garrett Gunderson. Uh, okay, everyone. Hope you guys enjoy the episode and we will we'll see you and, and talk to you next week. Garrett, what's up, my friend? How you doing? I'm glad you're still talking to me after I brought you to my house to work out, you know. I, I still think about that. I still think about, it. and coincidentally, I haven't had much of a you know a, an extreme response to a workout until yesterday because I got into biking and I freaking crashed my bike coming down City Creek Canyon. So I don't know, man. I, last good, I these are good memories. With, good memories they, are the most painful usually. One of our mutual friends, I went with. Uh, I did the Wasatch Crest with Garrett White, and I broke my elbow on that. Got a concussion. So yeah, we got to get the story quickly about, about, uh, the workout. So (laughs) we live close to each other and I don't even know how, how it happened. Like, Hey, you should come and work out at my house. I'm like, all right. So I go to your house and you have this like amazing setup in your basement. And then you have this big blackboard 
right? It has times on there. And apparently there's a, there's a challenge and you have to, what is it? Like 60 calorie airdyne. Just 60 seconds. We like, you know, cause it sounds easy when you say 60 Yeah. Seconds. 60 seconds of airdyne, airdyne, which is like basically those bikes that have a fan on it. They, the devil's know, tricycle. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And how many calories do you have to do 30 in 60 seconds? 30 to get a shirt and 40 to, to be on the elite side of the board. So. Okay. So I have, I have no idea where I landed, but you got it. You got the shirt, right? Yeah, I got the shirt. I got the shirt. And it wasn't worth it, but you got it. I think it was worth it. It's a good memory, man. We're talking about it now. You know, I found myself pass, almost passed out on your floor and your dog was looking me in the face and then I had to use the toilet. Anyway, it was a great experience, man. It was great. Th- yeah. Thanks for having me over. I appreciate it. We should do that again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we are taking it a little easier these days uh, with, with workouts. So it is a lot more pleasant. Um, oh, that's good. We, we don't. We realized we didn't really have anything to prove and being sore that, that sore all the time didn't really make a lot of sense. So now we just kind of, we just do some functional stuff and we take it easy. Anyone that comes and works out at your house, obviously just the nature of a challenge, they're going to pretty much do anything you tell them to do. So I did that at 2000 higher elevation and uh, on, on an echo bike, which is worse. It's just a little bit harder and beefier. And I wanted to, I really couldn't talk to people for 20 minutes. And then when I finally <laughs> spoke words, I said it. It wasn't worth it. That was my my whole comment. It wasn't <laughs> worth it. <laughs> All right. Well, Gary, it's awesome to have you on again. I know you were on a couple of years ago and yeah. uh, I have a tremendous respect for you and what, what you've done with your career, with your business. And as I mentioned in, in the, uh, uh, the intro, you're always pushing limits and trying to understand uh, the economy, understand uh, life, understand business, uh, and then communicate that to, to others. And, yeah. it's, and it's I have a tremendous respect for you and admiration for you. So thanks for what you do. Thanks, man. We live in kind of a, a gnarly time, right? We were talking before yeah. we started recording just about how you know the last two months have just been crazy from a standpoint of change. Maybe to, to start, like what what's been your experience through the last couple of months? Like what are you what do you find yourself observing the most? The good part of it is my kids are listening to me more. And uh, they're like, I'm able to use a, the, the concern or the so-called crisis as a way to heighten their attention engagement yeah. and talk about if they're, why are they afraid? And if they are afraid, where's that fear come from? And is it in the present moment or are they worried about the future? And that's been really profound that we've been having these weekly family meetings talking about our family mission statement and our values. And I've really bonded, especially with my youngest son during this time, like in a, in a deeper way. So that's, that's been the good side. The, the bad side is like I called a family member last night and they work with hospitals and they, you know, research the stuff six, seven hours a day. And just the level of concern and, and fear and frustration. And I'm just like, wow, it's time to change the narrative. Like, I don't think it's healthy to let the media control the narrative because their job is to be profitable. And when we get really clear that that's their job, they're not always um, using headlines that are really accurate. I stopped reading um, things about COVID for two reasons. One, the governor of California said within 30 days, they were going to have 22 and a half million people infected. And that was 36 or 37 days ago. And it's not even close. The second thing is I read an article out of New York where it said it was an apocalyptic site. And I think using the term apocalyptic is fear mongering. Oh, yeah. And there's no doubt there's deaths. There's no doubt that this COVID and it's really tough on people to get it tougher than the flu. But I also was talking about, I went to Utah's website and they have a, you know, Utah COVID website. And 
they said for every person that's reported, there's five and a half people that have it. Now, if that's true, I just want people to extrapolate one thing, that it's the same death rate as the flu, if that's true. Right now, if we're only reporting one in 5.5, and we're looking at the percentage, it's like 6% death in the United States. Yet, if we look at that 5.5, it actually takes it down to less than 1%. So it's real, I get. And uh, I admittedly have flown this week, and uh, it really felt good. And Like, I wore a P95 mask, and I take those precautions, especially for other people that are in my family. But it really, as much as it was quiet and sparse in the airport, it just felt natural. Like, I felt good. I went to this uh, place, 200 acres in Nashville, and just everybody was out playing, and we built a fire. And, you know, it just, it just felt really good. And I think if you could, you know, find a way to, even if it's isolated, get out somewhere in, in nature and just, you know, reconnect because nature has a parasympathetic context to it where when we're in a sympathetic state, it's fight or flight. When we're in parasympathetic, that's where we do a lot of healing and a lot of relaxation. And I think that this has created a lot of chronic stress and that chronic stress has people a little bit more agitated. I know that, you know, a few weeks in, I just started yelling at my son about something and my wife was on FaceTime and she's like, what is wrong with you? I'm like, I don't know. I'm just like, like I've probably given into the stress and succumbed to it too much. So it has a massive impact on the economy, but I want to assure everyone this economy was doomed already. 2020 was the year. You can go back and watch any of my YouTube videos. I've been saying it since 2018. I said, I don't know when it's going to hit, but if it's not at the end of 2020, I'm out. I will never talk finance again. That was where my stand was. And so this just exacerbated it. But it, there, the problems were already there underlying. And uh, when it comes down to it, there's one solution to all this, and it's that we've got to all learn to be value creators. And people think that someone can save them. I'm, not, I'm here to assure you, the government can't save you. Corporations won't save you. And effort isn't enough. It's time for intelligent action. And we've got to really discover who we are, what we're capable of, how we can serve others, how we can deliver value. And right now, fear is creating selfishness, where people are thinking in isolated thoughts because we're physically in isolation. So long answer, but that's just my initial thoughts. It's interesting. I think this has been, a, a, in a sense, a, a very healthy, from a psychological spe- perspective, a very healthy event. I think it's healthy because it's it's disruptive, and sometimes a system needs needs a shock, right? I think we all get in habits, and I and I I caught myself in a very similar, very similar patterns and habits as you, right? Where I I wanted things to be the way they were. Now now not consciously, it was more subconscious, right? Sure. And I'm like, I, I want to go to my office and and have those meetings and have my collaboration and people here and come home and do this and you know I think we we want those we we want those habits we want that consistency that cert that certainty and when it's not there, you know we kind of get caught off guard and that's what's been challenging about this situation is like you you just don't know there's so much unknown like how long are we going to be home how long is this going to last for how long is this how there's so much like un- unknown but what it what I think it's done. For those that I've been speaking to and myself included, and I, I assume you as well, uh, which is we're learning, you know, ways to focus on the things that are going well, right? Things that we can control uh, and simplicity and the essentials of life, right? Come into to focus. And I think that has been really valuable for people, right? It's been a breath of, uh, of fresh air. And, and hopefully it's given people a, a new perspective in, in a lot of ways, right? One, just what's happening, how much influence media does have, right? Where do we find a, an appropriate opinion so that we can 
hopefully find our own, not just gravitate toward you know what the common opinion is and just stick right. to that, but learn the truth and have our own. You know, but I, I think there's lots of lessons and lots of principles, you know, through this entire event, right? Including the financial ones. I think everything was fragile. Now that fragileness and it just kept growing and growing, this is something that's totally knocked it off kilter. I'm I'm happy that I learned my lessons in 2008. Um, I was a I was an optimist to the point of ignorance. Just uh, you know, 2007 was such a big year for my firm that I was like, this is always just going to get better. I mean, and I had a track record since 1998 that every year did get better and it just continued to grow. So I had this uh, level of ignorance that was making me very susceptible to risk, right? I was, I was spending money too quick, even though I was calling it investing in my business. I was, you saw the office I had back then, you know, and just the money I spent on my book and all this kind of stuff. And then 2008 hit and it was like, whoa, I'm overextended, I'm redlining. And it was really painful for six months, like really painful, like to the point where I didn't know who I was, like it crashed my identity. Like I was no longer successful in my mind. Then I was like, I'm no longer worthy in my mind. And I've failed my family and I got a lot of gray hair. And I just, you know, and it was like, it just was this grind that I got in. And what I learned was cash and cash management is so critical. And so I, I wasn't just like, let's build six months of savings. I was like, let's build years inside of cash value insurance that will give me staying power. Let's be really careful with our outgoing cash flow and consistently monitor it just five to 10 minutes a week to say, hey, in a mindful way, is this productive? Is it not productive? And it's, do we have enough saved up? And then I hired someone right after that that they were brilliant at cash management. It was their gift. So I was like, cash in, cash out. Like, yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's go for it. And became really good at spending. And so this time around, it felt good that when this really started to happen, I, I sent an email out to all my family. I said, hey, we're really prepared for this. Um, everything from food storage, which makes me sound totally like a Utah. And I always felt weird about it. And I'm like, oh, that feels really good. To like having enough cash. So I said, if anyone has financial woes or problems during this, please call on us, we can support. And it felt good to, instead of being in the grind and in crisis mode, to be in like, okay, let's reimagine, let's recreate, let's re-engineer everything that we're up to. And anything that I can't do that I was doing before, rather than being in pain about it, just acknowledge that, okay, that's not going to happen. Like I was supposed to give a TED talk, um, TEDx uh, talk in New York. I was supposed to take my son to Asia for a month and and go do service projects in Vietnam and Cambodia and take him to South Korea where I taught English. And, you know, like all those plans changed. And then I just looked at it like, well, what if this isn't happening to me? It's happening for me. And in that context, I'm like, ooh, I now get to spend a lot of time with my wife, which there's only one other time in my life where I was just home for or around her for 60 days with no travel. And that was when we went to Italy. I was like, this will be our version here to go to our cabin and have a lot of connection and a lot of time together. And We've had more conversation in the last few months than we've ever had in our life. And I feel like it's allowed us to be really connected. And really, honestly, I've just been doing a lot of righting my wrongs, man. Like I just look back at when I was an ass. I look back at like when I was arrogant or stupid. And I'm like, I wrote five letters this morning. I mean, I just find that it gives me a chance to make whole something that it, through immaturity or whatever, like do something different with it. And so, yeah. It's kind of like life has gotten a lot quieter and you're able to to listen, especially to the to the lessons, right? And and focus on what's most most important. As you are are going when I mean, we're still in 
we're still in it, right? I, I know that things are you know probably getting better, but from an economic perspective, we, we most likely have some challenging times uh, ahead. Right. Like, what What would you say are the primary lessons that you're extracting from this? The things that are really getting concrete for me is that in society we become extraordinarily consumeristic and materialistic, right? Because materialism almost is that feudal times of like, look what I've got. And this, I'm my stuff, I'm my net worth, and that our identity gets wrapped up in this. Yep. And the reality is most of that doesn't bring genuine happiness. Like I, I had this, this moment last week, I'm in my office right now, and I'm like looking around and I've just got pictures of my family, my wife, of comedy, things that I've done, of like people that just believed in me from the time I was young, just like, and I don't have a single award up in my office. There's not a plaque anywhere. There's not a, anything. There's just stuff that were gifts from people or moments that were important. I'm like, yeah, like, I feel like a lot of the pain people have right now is the definition of societal success. And dude, when I went to Italy, the gift it gave me was I used to see my value as my business. And so if there was a customer complaint, I felt terrible about myself not about the complaint, about myself and that, what that said about me. If we had a bad month, I felt like a less of a human being. And I was really into materialism. Like when you, when you and I you know, knew each other for a few years and I built that building, it was like, that was my demonstration of like, I've made it. And the reality was I had a hard time making those payments. You know, in 2008, it was like, oh damn, we're going to have to sell this building. And that was like, so I feel like these times, we get to redefine what makes us valuable. And I think what makes us valuable is just that we're human beings. And like human beings make mistakes and human beings can show love. And in these times, rather than pointing out anyone else's like, hey, you're wrong with this philosophy. I think it's just time to like show a little bit more love and, and a little bit more compassion and find ways to connect. And uh, as much as that might sound airy-fairy, like I just kind of wonder who shit on airy-fairy for the first time like to devalue its significance, right? Like it just, all it really means is like, hey, I, I kind of feel right now, whatever I do to someone else, I do to myself. And like last night when I was leaving the airport, the machine didn't work and I was all pissy with the, the gate agent. Like get these, like it's not even his fault. There I am just having to go, okay, I'm, I'm still a human being and I feel bad about it. What can I learn from it? And uh, that, that's, uh, I think it's time to really focus on ourselves versus the global economy that we can't control. It's overwhelming. And when we're overwhelmed, we check out and we numb and we go to escapism. And I think right now is the time to connect. So do you, do you see the, the lessons that you're learning, which is, which, is, which is amazing, do you see others learning that? You know, wh whether it's your audience, yeah, your listeners, I know you do tons of stuff online, you, know, you write for Forbes. Do you see these same lessons being learned by others? What's really interesting is like my YouTube channel has hit stagnation during this. Like I had 87 subscribers a year ago and then I'm just about 40,000 today. And that was just like it went up by 8,000 people just before the COVID crisis in a month. And I had 3 million views that month. Right now, I think I'm like a million views in the last 28 days and 1500 subscribers. And I was like, I was like, am I after this for the views or am I after this for the impact? Because what's been really nice is if anyone were to go to my YouTube channel and look at the comments, they're overwhelmingly positive for the last two months, like 95% positive and only 5%, you know, negative, smart aleck, you know, call me a snake oil salesman or that I need to cut my hair. Like it's, it's, I just see people 
that are really coming forward and going, okay, I'm ready to learn. The most positive thing that's happened from this is people are ready to learn. Nobody, not nobody, but so much fewer people truly listen when times are good. Like if I try to point out the problems of the stock market, they don't want to hear it. If I point out the problems of prepaying a mortgage, they think that's stupid because you could always sell the home. I'm like, yeah, okay. Like they just, they're just not ready to hear things. Right now, the people that are listening are listening so much more intently. Our weekly Q&A sessions are getting hundreds of questions. That's up big time. We did a virtual wealth acceleration workshop, which we'd only done in person before. And we had at the lowest point, three times more people online watching it than we've ever had in person watching it. So, so there's some things that are really interesting that way. And look, man, for me, the gift is I've been trying forever not to be attached to the road. Like that, that didn't have to be an instrumental part of my business. I think that you've done a much better job than me at that. And this has kind of created that opening out of necessity where if I don't go on the road, it doesn't matter. It's a choice. It doesn't, it's not required to feed the firm. And that's a gift. And I, and I like being around my family. That's really nice. I mean, it'd be nice to not have the kids around all the time. They're kind of still romance terrorists at this point. So I would say my romantic life romance tends to diminish, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, our kids are are roughly the same the same age. I can I can definitely attest to that. But at the same time, think about you know because a couple of years are going to be gone, you know, and it's right. like yeah, that, that's where that's what I've seen and observed is you know people are, are really experiencing the same thing when it really as it relates to their most important relationships, right? And I, and I think that's going to change the direction of society as well because things were so busy. Right, whether it's the amount of time we worked and the the extracurricular activities that we did, now it's like everything's more simple, which is amazing. Right, is you getting said the it, we were a slave to our pleasure. habits. We were a slave to our habits, unchecked and unquestioned. And as you said, we're, we were in a sense slaves to material things, slaves to well, this has to happen in order for me to feel you know feel this to experience this. I've uh, spent whereas, so much less money in the last two months, and I don't have any less happiness. It's weird. <laughs> I was spending a lot of money in January and February. I'm going to, you know, I just had a big December and I was like, ah, I'm going to buy this and that. And, you know, and it's like, I'm not buying any of that right now. And I feel totally fine. I feel no different, you know? Well, maybe one of the things I wanted to ask you is where you're, because you just mentioned that your YouTube views, uh, the engagement with some of your Forbes articles, what's received the most response? And then how are you characterizing that? you know, response relative to the other articles and, and media you're producing? Oh, so I was telling you this earlier that the articles I think are my best articles that are like the biggest part of who I am and my discoveries get very minimal views. Like, because they're more, they're very like philosophical construct and big picture. And then the, the articles on Forbes that get the most views are telling someone they're doing something wrong. And part of it is the people that want to read it so they can debate Right. Like they, there's a lot of people like the, art, the article, you know, that got the most views is paying off your mortgage early destroys your finances. And the title is a little bit clickbaity. I mean, it's because it, the article doesn't say that you shouldn't pay off your mortgage. I'm not the moral authority on whether someone should pay it off their mortgage or not. But the methodology of how they do it is instrumental. And I think that we're getting that proven right now in the covid crisis, because I'm saying if you put too much money by prepaying an amortized loan, that money ends up in equity gel. And if you have a time where your cash flow is weak and we're seeing unemployment on the rise, well, the bank's never going to lend you the money and you're going to be more susceptible to being foreclosed on. And people are like, 
dude, you can always sell the home. Like, I don't think it's the easiest time to sell a home right now. I'm just, I don't know for sure, but I imagine with quarantines, that's got to be a problem, especially if you own one in New York. And so that got a ton of views. Or when I said financial planning is broken and you're better off to blow your money. I think that was the other title. And that <laughs> got a lot, a lot of traction, like 279,000 views, I think. And, and, you know, like the articles about the recession and the CARES Act, those have gotten a decent amount of views. But uh, I mean, my favorite article that I put out in the last two months is one with uh, one of your partners uh, in prosperity economics, Todd Langford. I oh, yeah. interviewed him and wrote an article on cash value insurance that was all about the problems of universal life. And that's the most peddled product that exists out there today. And it's got like 8,000 views, but that I hope over its lifetime ends up getting millions. I think it just might be a slow go and someone's going to eventually read it and have it catch on because it's so important to know. But yeah, those articles are very interesting. The ones that really hit, I mean, in the bottom line is a title makes such a difference more so than the article itself. Well, it's interesting you know, and I, and I love to, to understand kind of how you've grown with, you know, being able to speak and write about hard things, especially when you're telling a person that, that they're wrong or telling someone, you know, something that is against conventional wisdom. I mean, you wrote a whole book about it, you know, killing sacred cows, which is, you know, conventional wisdom. It's what everybody does. Uh, and, you know, doing that, tactfully where you're able to not only prove the point but do it in a in a way in which it actually helps a person think right because you can easily attack and a person is just going to defend themselves to the nth degree right and not learn anything from it but you've been able to evolve a lot speak to that a little bit about how you approach you know those challenging topics where you're telling a person that what they're doing is wrong but yet you're doing it in a way where they're, they're able to learn in my 20s, I really had this attitude of like, I just need to like go after it. I just need to like, like anger. there's almost anger, right, to it. Like, how could you? And I just don't think that that was really effective. And so this article, the mortgage article, I lead with when I was in high school in a math class, I saw the math of what happens when you do a 15 year versus a 30 year mortgage. And I came home like, mom, are we on a 15 year mortgage? She goes, of course we are. We're saving all that interest. I'm like, oh my God, thank you. And then I went to college and I had this uh, class from this professor Hamlin on economics and he taught me opportunity cost and cost of money. And then I was like, oh, wait, like if you could earn the same interest that you pay, it doesn't matter. But you have more flexibility, you have potential tax advantage, you have more control of your money. And the big argument people give me is like, well, people are just going to blow that money. I'm like, okay, let's say that's true. They're going to put themselves at risk if they're going to blow that money by trying to prepay a mortgage because they're going to be blow the rest, get into really high interest rate credit card debt. I'd rather see them pay off the credit card than a, so anyway, you, you get the picture. So I'm not, I actually admit my initial limited thinking. I, I start with self-deprecation of saying, this is how I thought it was too. And it, you know, I have no dog in the fight. Like I, it, it doesn't matter what the solution is. If it's a 15 year mortgage and that's the most beneficial thing for someone, I don't get paid more or less for giving that advice. Like, I just think that, you know, if I use Susie Orman as one example, she is a sellout that gets paid by sponsors. Uh, she's been paid by the FDIC. I believe she's probably been paid by Starbucks because she went from you shouldn't do it to you do it. And then she always had a cup of coffee on her on her <laughs> show. Like, and look, it's hard not to bring bias. It just is. I mean, like Dave Ramsey says, everybody should just do everything they can to pay off their credit card debt. And cool. Yeah. 
like how to do it. I'm okay with all the advice on that. I'm just not okay with once you do that, you just put your money in the stock market because I think that we deserve a little bit better thinking that that's been overpromised, underdelivered. There's too much volatility. People don't do well handling it. It creates unnecessary stress for them. And one of the articles I wrote that didn't get nearly the traction it deserved was the stock market still overvalued. And uh, that was when we started to see it dip. And here's why. 84% of the gains in the stock market go to 10% of the investors. And what I think people don't understand is, let's say the market's done 6% over the last 20 years. And that's more accurate than when people think it's done 10. I mean, 10 comes from the 90s, what it did better than that to boost it up to 10. And that's a pipe dream. It's never happening again because too many companies are going to go out of business through disruption. And anyway, so here's why it matters that 84% of the gain goes to 10% of the investors is because of hedge funds, because of options and derivatives. It doesn't mean that all investors average 6%. It means that some people got 30% and other people got nothing because it went to the few that were in the hedge funds that were selling short. And, and I just don't think people get that. So they're investing in companies they don't believe in. They're taking risk that's unnecessary because the world has done a good job at making stocks synonymous with investing. And I have this whole comedy bit I'm starting to work on, which is about Wall Street. Now, if we surveyed the world and said, do you trust Wall Street? Yes or no? It's got to be 90% would say no. Like, you don't think warm, fuzzy feeling with Wall Street. Every movie about Wall Street, Gordon Gecko, Wolf of Wall Street, Jordan Belfort, like, they're these terrible movies about harming people or stealing money, essentially, right? And, and yet, this is what people are doing. So my premise is, would you let someone from Wall Street babysit your child? And the answer is no, because you'd come back and they're like, oh, they're missing 8% of their body. We lost some toes. Hopefully they'll grow back and recover. But it's like, why do we do that with our money? It's just, it's just because of social agreements. And social agreements are what create the pain of materialism and consumption. Social agreements have us feel less worthy than we are, has us feel like we need to have what someone else has. It creates jealousy. And, and this is unfortunately the consumption-based system that we've got into. And my problem with it is like, capitalism has become more about taking than giving. It's become more about competition than creation. That's why I'm more like free market. We've got to stop having an agenda for someone and telling them what to do. And they've got to discover things. They've got to make mistakes. They've got to learn lessons. And anytime we try to so-called protect them, then we rely on a government that's not capable of protecting anyone because they're not functional themselves. So that's my little diatribe on that. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, I think that's human nature, right? There's so many things that we consistently observe but never really understand the the nature the root of my oldest daughter you know she was like why did donald trump come up with make america great again and i and i went in and we were having this competition of like uh questions right where you have to answer a question with a question so i asked her where did the word america come from and that sparked a really cool you know kind of tangent mm -hmm. but the point is it's like america most people do not know where that word comes from right right and so, but you look at, it's our country, right? It's on Donald Trump's hat. He talks about it all the time. Everybody talks about it all the time. So it's one of those, you know, I would say the, the stock market, right? What you do with your money, there hasn't been enough questions asked around it, right? Why? Why does it exist? Why do we do this? Where did it come from? What's the end objective, right? It, it's kind of like it's been pre-planned for us. Therefore, we don't have to think about it and can focus on other things. I think that the biggest issue that we face as a nation and as a world is that we've lost sight of how to create a vision. 
the vision exists within a box of well-intentioned preachers and teachers and not so well-intentioned governments and the corporations. And if we could just get clear about like, if we left money on the side for a minute and just realized that's a byproduct and we said, what do we want to do? Now, what some people want to do won't pay as much as other things. That's the nature of value and what people value and what people are willing to pay for, because that's part of a free economy. But if we don't identify ourselves as our money, if that's only an indication of the value we've created in the past and a ledger of that, and that snapshot in today, what that means is it doesn't dictate the value we create in the future. And what's been lost upon people is that there's two more precious forms of capital. One is our mental capital. And if we develop that by investing in ourselves, right, to gain knowledge and insight and wisdom and, you know, tools and strategies. And then the second thing, which I think it's an unprecedented time to build is relationship capital. Right now, we can build relationship capital because when people are in fear, they're looking for leadership. And that leadership, here's the secret that I've had a hard time learning in my own life. The secret is not knowing everything. The secret is listening. Listening and then what you did with your daughter, asking questions that move the narrative to one that's productive. And if you could just ask great questions and listen, you've got the keys to wealth. So I really feel like now's the time to ask better questions and ask different questions. I don't know if you remember this. This is when your your when Killing Sacred Cows went out uh, came out, and we went down to Vegas, and you you spoke, and that was the first time I heard Keith Cunningham. But as you've been talking, I love Keith. I love him. Like some of his yeah, man, he's totally. he's such a uh, such a cool guy. I just heard him speak in November, uh, and I remember when I was speaking at that event, he walked in the room, and from the back of the room while I'm speaking, he goes. Love Killing Sacred Cows. That's a great title. What a title. And I was like, oh, that's cool. That's the speaker that just went before who I love. So yeah, he's a stud. He tells it like it is, right? He's, you know, he's big on principle. He's big on questions, but he's also, there's something that he talks about all the time, which is, which is thinking, right? So it's the idea of listening, asking questions, but then taking time to just, you know, think. I think this has given people a lot of time to, to think because it, because in the end, something you were hitting on is... Isn't his, his new book, The Road Less Stupid? Yeah. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> He's so Texan. And <laughs> it is. And if you've heard him speak before, like you read the book and like hear him, hear his voice. Like, hear his the voice words, like, it's yeah. hilarious. It's hilarious. Because he has this big Texas accent. But, but the, the point is, you know, I, I don't think we ever, you know, this is at least for me. I never asked, why am I doing this? Like, what am I trying to achieve? Right? And then... And sometimes we ask those questions, but we only go a, like one or two layers deep, right? But if you, if you keep asking yourself questions about, well, why do I want to do that? And if I had that, why would that make a difference? Okay. And if I didn't have it, you know, where, where would I be? What would I think? What would I feel? Right. So I think the end objective, right, ultimately is way more important, right, than just sticking to a status quo and getting the same end objective as everybody else. And I think those are the those simple, really deep questions help us understand, you know, why we're doing what we're doing, what we really want, and hopefully gives us direction as to maybe things to adjust uh, or get rid of to get what we really want, right? Because I, I've gravitated, and I'm not sure what your opinion is toward Ray Dalio, but some of the stuff he says is is pretty amazing. Like I, his insights regarding you know principles is, is and risk management and just and and staying like with a beginner's mind and learning and not getting learned. And I mean, just like a lot of that is so profound. 
And it is, and it's so simple, right? But it's like the Pareto, you know, principle, the the eighty twenty rule, where you get, you know, eighty percent of everything off of, you know, twenty percent of effort in in information. It's I was reading that the other day, and it just like it just hit me. I'm like, wow, it's this is kind of COVID, right? Where we're getting way probably way more satisfaction with so much less noise activity, <laughs> right? Busyness, and uh, and it's profound. And I, I think those are really valuable lessons. So maybe we can hit on this. As you're writing and speaking, right? I know you're always pushing the limits and, and growing and trying to be more valuable. Like, what what would you say is your intention behind some of that writing? What are you hoping people will gain by understanding more about their mortgage, understanding more about the market, more about you know the idea of, of value and where value comes from, like and, and purpose and legacy, the stuff that you are clearly passionate about. What are you hoping others take away from that? What's like the ideal outcome you hope for them? One thing. And one thing is always at the core of it. Personal responsibility. That's the number one thing. It's the only way that we grow. It's the only way that we have like with that accountability and personal responsibility, we become less duped, less reliant, and we can learn. There's no learning. And there's, for me, Without personal responsibility, there's no way to have a relationship with someone, right? If I can bring that to them because I can help them think, I can help them learn. And so in doing that, I continue to write in a way that I think is simpler and simpler. Simple does not mean discounted. It means understandable, right? And if you look at Killing Sacred Cows, I think people can understand the book. But even when I did the audio book, it was too elaborate at times. The sentences were too long. They become redundant that way. I'm using vocabulary that, you know, why did make, it, make America great again work as a campaign is because everyone gets to define what great is subjectively. And everybody could understand it even if they were in third grade. So if I write to sound intelligent, then I'm not connecting. I'm not giving the reader the resources. And if I could take what feels complicated and make it understandable, they're empowered. They're empowered. And I don't write for everyone to agree, but if I can at least get them to question at least one thing and go, okay, that's, that's an, a valid point. Because the one article that has the most views, I think half the reason it has the most views is because it's very polarizing and people will defend for their life that paying off a mortgage is the best thing you could possibly do in the world. That's someone say, my grandfather said, you can't beat a man that's paid off his mortgage. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. But obviously, he cared about his grandfather. And so it's a way to honor his ancestors. But I think that we got to shake loose ancestral damage. We can honor our ancestors and be free moving forward. And I think that we have a lot of ancestral knowledge that was limiting based upon the consciousness of the time and the situation. And as situations change and the context changes, if we keep the content the same, then we create unnecessary pain and we, ought, we don't honor ourselves. And so I think that too many people rely on everyone else. And if I can get them to rely on personal responsibility, I feel like I've done some good in the world. So that's where I come from. You know, this is, this is profound because I, I look at, you know, what's been done in the past. I mean, there was probably, and this is a general statement, but it was, there were good intentions and they wanted something as an end result. What's most important isn't the way they did it. What's important is the end result of why they did it, right? And today, I don't, I'm not sure if the end result has changed that much, 
right? But we we live in a, such a, a modern society where things are are easier, right? They're quicker, they're more efficient, they take less energy. You know, I think at again going into the method and then the objective, right? I think the uh, objective is way more important to understand and be clear about before you get into into methods. And you've always preached that, man. I mean, I, I what's been awesome is to observe you over the years and how consistent you've you've been to you know principles that you believed in pre crash and then post, and you just continue to write about the the same things, but it's different, right? And that's where I've I realize people need a certain environment in order to absorb that information, right? And be able to rewire their methods, but then also understand at a clear level what the objective is. I think right now it's kind of people are now somewhat humbled, right? And, and I, I include myself in it, right? There's a lot of valuable lessons I'm learning through all of this. But I think when you're in that state, that's when you really start to think about you know, what you were doing and ways in which you can improve it. That's the beauty of humanity is solving is solving problems. And we'll make mistakes along the way. It's part of the learning. And uh, that's okay. Because I think, I think that a lot of pain in humanity is perfectionism. That's why we get so stuck in what's right, what's wrong. I do, it's my way or the highway. It's like, yeah, I get it. You're trying to, you don't want to make a mistake and you don't want to admit if you made a mistake because it shows vulnerability or whatever it is. But it's like, hey, if we can just acknowledge that, then we can learn from it and move on. Like, I think that's anything through my career is when I had a strong belief in something and someone showed me evidence of why that might not be the case. Like I remember my business partner, Les, and I were sitting down analyzing 401ks. And as we're analyzing and we're like, dude, if this thing got 15% in investment, nothing could beat it. There's no, like, there's with the, the tax deferral. And, and then we started going, well, what's going to get 15% long term? Like I could understand for a year, but, you know, because we used thinking hard money lending at the time and it was going nuts. And so he thought he was being conservative. And, and then we start looking at like, what were tax rates? And then we, we just sat in a hotel room. And after three hours, we're like, oh, my God, these things are riddled with fees. They have penalties which keep people stuck inside of them. They haven't managed their cash flow appropriately. And we're like, how much more powerful if you're economically independent and have cash flow to cover your expenses than every dollar you earn can be reinvested versus only 10% of it. And it was like this world unfolded where I'm like, oh, my God, I got to admit that I was wrong. I got to go tell people that I'm cashing out my 401k. That's not comfortable. I didn't want that news. But I just think that intellectual integrity is the key for the evolution of our financial world. And if I learn new things that are different than what I believed, I have to be willing to say I was wrong. And look, in real estate, I've done wrong. I mean, I've made mistakes with investing. The good news is I really haven't in the last decade. Now, people could point out that I probably could have gotten better returns. But the reality is my returns came in my business and I captured and transferred that into personal wealth through my cash value. And that is very simple for me. And I'm just sitting on it because I think I'm going to buy some businesses through this crisis. And I think that that's going to be really good for those employees. And I think it's going to be good for the business owner that might have gotten nothing. And instead, he got something, right? So, so I feel like I've got a really clear value system on it. Well, Garrett, let's, let's do this. We could probably go on for hours and hours. <laughs> What have you found your, the advice you're giving the most, right? Or the things you're talking about the most with, uh, with your, your audience? And, and also, what are some of the things you are advocating not to do? So what, yeah. th- things to do and be focused on and things not to do and not be focused on. It's too early to allocate capital to investments, I feel. 
Um, I'm saying we don't know how long it's going to last. So get access to cash, do refinance and get equity, you know, put that in your bank account. If you have a line of credit, tap into it, pay the interest for a few months, put that in cash because the banks are probably going to cut that down. Unfortunately, I have been giving advice on how to get money from the CARES Act and the EIDLs, you know, and, uh, and the PPP because we paid the tax and they're offering it. And uh, it's important for the smaller businesses. And I was really frustrated to find out 80% of people that got the loans were big businesses. And hopefully they are returning the money because you know what? There's a lot of big businesses that if they went out of business, I wouldn't miss them for two seconds. But there's a lot of small <laughs> businesses that I would really care about that would be really, it would really suck to see them go out. So refinancing to get lower outgo, being mindful, like really telling business owners that they should move to production-based compensation where they give minimal, minimal salary and they give a lot more upside. So what happens is during really good times, business owners make a disproportionate amount of money. And during downtimes, they lose a disproportionate amount of money. If you can create a structure where everybody's in the boat and they understand when it's sinking and that they all need to work towards being it rising or when it's rising, they all benefit from it rising. I feel like that's a really big game changer and it's better for today's economy. It was okay to just pay people time for money in the industrial age, but we're not in the industrial age anymore. And so you can get more out of people and they can get more out of what they do too. And so you work together in a team format. So those are, those are, you know, cash and cash management and compensation and making adjustments quickly. Like don't wait till it's too late. I did in 2008. Everybody got paid, but me. I wrote an article in Forbes called, are you, the only, are you the only one not getting paid right now? Like that's a problem, right? Because sacrifice leads to destruction. And it's important to really take care of yourself during this time. Otherwise you have nothing to give. And you don't want to run out of room because you just tried to get everybody else to be okay. Like when I had partners die, dude, we just hemorrhaged money because we had 42 employees. I didn't even know what to tell them to do because I just didn't have time and I didn't have bandwidth. And I lost two people that would normally delegate that stuff. And what I should have done is take a week off just sit down with everyone, figure out what they were going to do, whether they were going to stay. And all I did was pay people to mourn, to be confused about what to do, and then take on a burden that, that cost me you know, years of my life when it came down to it in health, not in actual years. But yeah. That's great advice, man. I mean, it's one of those, it's advice that doesn't net, come from information, right? I think there's a difference between information and, and experience, right? I think one of the greatest lessons that we probably learned was during the times when you know things went haywire and we lost and we're not prepared, right? And now you're going to protect yourself from not doing that again. And right now, I mean, it's just an example of how long the bull run was and just how quickly things started to unravel, which I think is just going to it's going to continue. Yeah. Uh, but listen, let's let's maybe end with you just talking about what what's exciting right now for you. Like, what are some of the things you're you know you're working on, you're doing that that you're lit up about? So one thing I'm doing is a one man show. So I had this dream that I was directing a one-man show. And I don't know if you've ever seen the one-man show that uh, Bo Eason did called Run of the Litter. Mm -hmm. That's one of the first ones I've seen. Or Mike Tyson did one called Tyson that Spike Lee directed. Or Billy Crystal did one called 700 Sundays. And so I, I really feel like um, entertainment is the gateway to transformation. And if I could bring entertainment into a normally, normally kind of tough, dry topic of money, that I could really help with giving people new confidence and and give them an experiential way to learn how to create value. And so I act in it. It's why I'm going to go practice it right after this, doing a full run through. So I play four characters in it. I, I dance at the end of it. I <laughs> like, it's just this full expression to give people permission to have freedom and uh, really engage in a way that, that delivers value. So 
that's been, you know, I have a director, I have a, a screenwriter, I have a comedic writer, um, you know, so it's been a big collaboration, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a it's, it's been one of the most fun things I've ever, ever done. So are you, are you filming it t- like today or is it um, like, it's what's, what? it's just a practice okay. we'll run through from beginning to end. We are recording and I'll start listening to it. I mean, we've been working on stage direction and props and, and the characters do like acting. I had never acted before. So I'm doing everything from a little stand up in it to doing, you know, playing my guitar while I run people through an exercise to at the end, I just dance as a, as a sign of expression and I'm not a dancer. So it's just like, Hey man, let's just let go of what people think and let's just be ourselves type of thing. So. All right. So when's that, when's that due to. I was going to perform it for the first time in June, but is this something that's videoed or something that's done in in live performance? It'll be live. Yeah. Okay. I want a ticket. Uh, yeah, when we, we'll do that. I'm hoping I got someone on the board at Health Center Theater that saw me do stand up and said, I'd love to have you do something at Health Center Theater. So when this uh, COVID thing's over, hopefully I'll, I'll film it and do a full production and it'll be right here in your backyard. And uh, love to get just a bunch of people I know there. I, I think it's, for me, it's my love bomb on humanity. It's just like, a <laughs> here you go. So. Well, Garrett, how can how can uh, listeners tune into you, your YouTube channel, your yeah. your social media, fo- follow you and, and keep learning from you? YouTube channel is the way. You can go Garrett.live in an internet browser, or you can go youtube.com forward slash Garrett Gunderson TV. Either way, subscribe. I'm doing videos there. And, you know, that's probably the best way to stay connected. I actually, Garrett, I respond to almost every comment too. So, well, this has been enlightening to say, to say the least. I, I, I expect nothing less. But, Garrett, thank you for your time, man. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks for sharing your wisdom with the, uh, with the audience. And, yeah, I can't wait to I can't wait to see the one man show. Awesome, man! You're always out there as a symbol of abundance, dude. I'm, I swear, you just have always been a, a man that's been abundant and sharing, willing to tell people how you're really doing things and what you're up to and what mistakes you've made and what how you do it differently. Like, I really appreciate that about you because not a lot of people are willing to share at that level. So, thanks for who you are and, and how you show up. Thanks, Gary, man. That means uh, means a lot. I appreciate it. All right, man. I'm off to practice. (laughs) Okay. Good luck. All right. (laughs) right, Take care. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Oh,